was alcohol part of your lifestyle before you had bariatric surgery? Hi, I'm registered dietitian, nutritionist, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Let's go beyond bariatric surgery and talk about everything you need to move on. Could alcohol be an issue after surgery? Is it tied to weight loss or your desire for food? Just ahead, let's ask psychologist Dr. Connie Stapleton some of these questions. But first, we were pleased to partner with BN Multis this season. They're our go-to in Australia. Why? They meet requirements we look for in supplements. So when you need Multis, please check out BN Multis in the shop on our website, beyondbariatricsurgery.com. Joining me via Skype from Atlanta, Georgia, is psychologist Dr. Connie Stapleton. She believes that therapy is a means of learning how to live, interact, communicate, and love in healthier ways. Specializing in weight loss and addictions, she's very experienced in the bariatric surgery world. Check out more about Dr. Stapleton on our website, beyondbariatricsurgery.com. You can just click on the podcast for her episode, then the show notes, or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash beyondbariatricsurgery. We have a lot of ways you can connect with her. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stapleton. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. It is really exciting to be on the podcast. I'm excited to be with you today. We are too. We have a lot of questions to ask you, so get ready. <laughs> so I was talking to our content director, Amanda, who's been a bariatric dietitian in Australia for some time now. And she says that she sees issues with alcohol quite frequently after bariatric surgeries. So my first question is, do you agree with her? And how common is it to develop alcohol problems? I have seen a tremendous number of people develop problems with alcohol, not only alcohol, but other kinds of addictions after weight loss surgery. I don't know the exact numbers and, and research will give you numbers from 2% to 20%. So either way, if you're one of those people, it's a problem and it can happen to anybody. So it's not just people who are drinking before surgery that need to be on the lookout or be aware of their alcohol consumption and what happens to people after they drink. And you know, there's not much of a physical restriction on the ability to drink alcohol either after surgery since it's a liquid. But how about sensitivity to alcohol itself and its effects? Is that different after surgery? It is different after surgery. And I really like, I like the way you worded that, restrictions on alcohol after surgery, because it is a liquid. Although personally, I believe there should be a major restriction on alcohol after surgery because of how it affects the body. If you've had Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, your absorption rate of alcohol Within 90 seconds, you can be legally intoxicated, meaning if you have one four-ounce glass of wine and you go get in your car and drive, you are susceptible to getting a, a DUI. Wow. The, yeah. It's, in it's in fact, that was a question that was on the tip of my tongue that, that you're already going to, and I love that. Because uh, I thought at first, this seems like an odd question, but what I'm hearing, it's really not at all, that alcohol problems may be tied to one type of surgery more than another. another. That's what you're saying, right? That is true. But it's also true that, the, that with the sleeve, alcohol is absorbed much more rapidly and there's quite a risk for the development of alcohol problems after surgery as well. And with the lap band, 
there's really not a difference in how the alcohol is absorbed. But we got to consider that alcohol, regardless of the surgery, are, is nothing but empty calories. And we don't suggest that patients go out and eat cake on a regular basis. So I'm confused about the liberal attitude toward alcohol consumption after weight loss surgery. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I want to go there in just a second. But before we kind of leave the digestion and the metabolism of alcohol, I'm thinking about we produce the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase in our liver, but also some in the lining of our stomachs around that lower central part of the stomach. So in a sleeve, you still have some part of that stomach where in bypass, it's mostly not coming into contact with the alcohol. So I hear what you're saying, that alcohol can be a problem for anybody with any surgery, but its uh, metabolism and utilization does vary some with a type of surgery, correct? I just want to make sure that I'm clear on that. That is correct. And the bypass, the gastric bypass, Ruin Y, is the one where the most intense problems originate more quickly. So I've been thinking also that is there a reduction in alcohol tolerance due to smaller body size? But I don't think that's what you're saying. That's not what I'm saying. Body size, of course, is a factor for metabolism with anyone. But after weight loss surgery, it's not a body size issue. It's an absorption issue. So are there guidelines when you look at every day as a practitioner and you're keeping up with what the science says so that you can help empower your patients to be the best they can. What's changed in the treatment guidelines that practitioners should be aware of for their patients? Or I guess, let me ask this, has anything in alcohol and alcohol use changed over the years? Fortunately, there is more research being done on alcohol and its effects after weight loss surgery. So that's a very positive thing. I don't know that there's a lot of uniformity between surgeons and what they suggest to their patients. Uh, you know, I work across the country and out of the United States as well. And I hear my doctor said no alcohol for six months. Mine said none for a year. So I don't think there's a uniformity. And I think there needs to be much more education, not only to the patients, but to the physicians and the RDs as well. To everybody. So I'm thinking specifically about the ASMBS guidelines and how they do come out with recommendations as the literature says, okay, this would be helpful for your patients in bariatric surgery. Are there, do they have guidelines that speak to um, substance abuse, alcohol abuse before or after surgery, or maybe what makes someone a high risk patient, if you will? Well, some of their, their primary researchers actually who are very affiliated with the ASMBS are the ones that are doing some of this research. So that's a good thing. So there is some literature on the ASMBS website. As far as their overall recommendation, it's that patients need to be educated and informed about the possible effects of alcohol following weight loss surgery. So when I hear you say that, and, and at first I was going to say, so this is a recommendation that needs to be part of the conversation when appropriate, but it almost sounds like just as we educate on diet and nutrition and what works for you and what's going to give you the greatest success in terms of the way you eat, it seems like this is a, when I, because I, I think of calories, you know, these are calories coming from right. alcohol as well. It seems like that alcohol needs to be kind of included 
included in uh, every all the different practitioners for us as dietitians, certainly among liquids and the effect and the calories coming from those liquids, where as a psychologist, you might think of it from a totally different standpoint, right? Correct. But you're, I agree completely that this needs the use of alcohol after weight loss surgery needs to be addressed by every single member of the multidisciplinary team. And it's not when necessary because it's always necessary. Yeah. And, and, and many times you don't think about that. It's not something right. you go to with a surgery because I, I, I go to risk factors a bit. And let's think about that. And this one interested me when I was looking at some of your information. Is there a link between the amount of weight loss and the use of substances like alcohol? Yes, the literature, I believe, says that the less amount of weight loss is associated with a greater use of alcohol. What I think are bigger risk factors than that are genetics, family history of addiction, whether it's you know, nature or nurture, I think it's a combination of both as with most things. But if a person's grown up in an environment where there was addiction of any sort and or they have many, many family members who are suffering from addictions, then that person, I believe, is more likely to seek another form of medication or sedation or num numbing agent following weight loss surgery. I kind of tell patients, if you have a food addiction or if there's a lot of other types of addiction in your family, it's almost like we send you into the operating room, cut off your arms and legs, and send you home to swim. We don't provide you with coping skills to deal with life stress, emotions, environment, because we've taken your source of comfort away from you, if that's a relevant situation for that particular patient. And, right. And what I can hear is if it is a relevant situation, then yes, genetics, all of those things I agree can play a part in if someone is affected. And then, as you just said, from a diet standpoint, if you're in drinking more alcohol, the calories that come along with that are going to affect the amount of weight loss. So the more alcohol consumed, the less overall weight loss. Absolutely. And the more alcohol consumed, the poorer the judgment. The poorer the judgment, the more eating of unhealthy other foods, as well as some other behaviors that we might not want to even touch on in this particular podcast. Fascinating. So it's what I'm hearing you say is that all the health practitioners, not just saying, hey, maybe alcohol is not a good idea, but we have to dig a little bit deeper. And hopefully patients will be, will, you'll be saying to us as well, listen, I have a family history of alcohol misuse or food addiction or whatever. How is this going to affect me after surgery? So it's kind of um, needs to be a back and forth in that discussion. Absolutely, it does. It needs just to be what you said. It needs to be a discussion. So Dr. Stapleton, what about the development of night eating disorder or night eating after surgery or subjective hunger? Because night eating's come up before uh, in some of my podcasts as an issue after surgery. Can you speak to that? Night eating is a problem for a subset of the population. Uh, I hear less about that than I do alcohol consumption, actually. Um, however, it is a, a true problem. And I don't know if you're, you're referring to 
later evening eating, which is a huge problem for many, many post-ops. Or if you're referring to like night eating syndrome where people eat in the middle of the night and they don't remember eating. Right. And they are two different things. So take a moment and if you would and address both of those. Okay. People seem to report very frequently that they do very, very well during the day sticking to their food plan. And in the evening after work, while they're watching TV, after the kids have gone to bed, they find themselves struggling very, very much to stay away from the snack foods or just eat more, even if it's, if it's healthier foods. And I believe that that can be resolved by having a plan, a written out plan to protect yourself. And that's exactly what I call it. It's a protection plan. You know when your, your vulnerable times are and then you do the things you need to do. So if you need to call a friend or if you need to have only these certain foods in the house or if you need to have, you know, pre-measured portion, you know, whatever you need to do, you've got to develop a plan. And if it's an emotional thing, then you've got to learn to recognize what you're feeling and from there say, what would be a healthy way to get my need associated with this feeling met? in a healthy way. So if you're feeling lonely, rather than going to a bag of popcorn, maybe I need companionship. So I'll call somebody. So kind of writing out a plan to protect yourself from your, your triggers. I really love this idea of a protective plan. And I, I think it's proactive and making sure that when this happens, because it sounds like Something like this happens to a lot of people a lot of the time. I mean, I know just out, uh, not even talking about bariatric surgery, just in general, that stress eating or emotional eating as a dietitian, I have seen this tied for years to, I had a bad day, my boss is difficult, uh, I'm not feeling good about myself, so I'm going to have uh, A, chocolate, B, ice cream, C, whatever it happens to be. Exactly. So the same kind of thing that you're talking about. And, and, if you, and if you don't have some strategy in place, that's why I, if I was going to say, if you had to say my number one and two strategies to conquer this or, or what? What would you tell people to do? Number one is to learn about feelings and connect what your emotional need is to that feeling and have, you know, have options for getting those emotional needs met. Because I think that's a huge part of this nighttime eating. And when you say the term subjective hunger, I think many people won't be familiar with that. Explain that to us. So subjective hunger means, all right, I got to discern, is this a physical hunger? And most likely it's not. So it, what am I hungry for? And then you put that in the context of feelings and emotions and say, I'm, I'm hungry for attention, or I'm hungry for companionship, or I'm hungry for uh, comfort. So I think that learning to identify in those emotional eating situations and mindfulness is probably the other thing because there's so much mindless eating that goes on. So it would be the protection plan that is centered around learning your feelings, what the emotional need is, and having options for meeting those needs in a healthy way. And then the other thing would be mindfulness, because people eat so mindlessly and eat so many calories that way. And you know, mindfulness to me is a big deal, because I think about, so typical here in the U.S., is that food is 
ubiquitous. Everywhere you go, we serve food. And food is comfort. It's legal. People don't look down on it for you having it there. So it's in your environment all the time. Then what happens if it's so hard for you to resist the food that's in front of you? You know, I, this is what I'm thinking about. Okay, you see food. It calls mm-hmm. your name. calls your name. Mm-hmm. Come on, Connie. Just have a little taste here. <laughs> and then it's really difficult to put the kibosh on that desire to eat food. How do you tie that in? Because that's, to me, a part of subjective hunger is that you've got to be able to say, ooh-wee, it's calling my name. And that's hard to stop. It is hard to stop. And that that's a big question. It's not a real simple one. To me, it, it comes down to you need to know yourself. So if this absolute, I got to have it, got to have it now kind of thing going on. You need to know yourself well enough to know that if I'm craving chocolate, if I eat Two Hershey's kisses. Will that will that scratch that itch well enough that it's gone, or is that going to awaken a sleeping giant? And you've got to know yourself well enough to know that if I have two Hershey's kisses, forget it. I'm going to get as much chocolate as I can get in the next two hours till I feel sick. Okay. But if you can, if you can safely eat a little, then do it. If you can't, then you got to. We got to implement some other options for you. Okay, so I know that some of you are thinking, okay, Susan, I don't get it. Where is the connection to what you were talking about to alcohol and the desire to eat? So Dr. Stapleton, make the connection here to alcohol and the desire to eat that food in front of you. There is a tremendous link between alcoholism and sugar addiction. So the body, if it's craving sugar, it may crave, and, and you're not allowing sugar, and you may not be able to allow sugar. If a person has a physiological addiction to sugar where it makes them just want more and more and more of it, then sugar isn't a good thing, but alcohol is equally as dangerous. Like 30 years ago in treatment centers, they knew if a person went through treatment for alcoholism, they told them be very cautious with sugar and white flour. So there's a an absolute scientific correlation between these things. Now, do you see alcohol issues occurring right after surgery or down the track? Some of both, actually. But I would say, by and large, it's down the track a couple of years later after that honeymoon period. And you know what? This, this to me, can be a real problem because think about it. Mostly patients and practitioners are in close contact prior to surgery Mm -hmm. and maybe the first three to six months, if you're really lucky, then you've got team support that first year. So if this is not even happening later, how do you get prevention in there in that time you are together to maybe say, oh gosh, I've got to prevent this happening? I think the very best we can do is plant seeds and make sure that the patients are hearing it literally from every member of the multidisciplinary team. Because a lot of people say, I didn't, I never heard that. I never heard that. And if just the psychologist passes over it, then it's like, oh, well, you know, they may not have heard that. But if every, if the surgeon is saying it, if the dietitian is saying it, if the exercise people are saying it, if the, if the psychologist is saying it, they've 
gotten the message. And if the patients aren't returning to the practice, there's not a lot we can do except for provide a lot of online stuff in the way of education. Absolutely. Do you think that these issues are preventable? I think they are preventable. I think with any kind of thing, you know, education is the first step. You've got to be aware that something is possibly a problem. I don't know that it's always preventable because so many people think this would never happen to me, just like in anything else, right? Right. But it's definitely treatable, absolutely treatable. I love to hear that. Okay, as we wrap up, you've given us a lot to think about, which is eye-opening to to many of us. What have I not asked you that you really want us to know? I want everyone to know that this can happen to anyone, whether you were a drinker before surgery or not. So many people are taken off guard by the fact that five years later, they are drinking uncontrollably even though they never drank before. So a lot of people completely dismiss the message because they're not drinkers prior to the surgery. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for taking time to come on today and to share your insight and your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I love getting this education out. So remember, alcohol problems can develop after surgery, even down the track. So consider avoiding alcohol, particularly if you have a family history of alcohol problems or you've had strong desires with regards to food in your past. These could transfer to alcohol, as you heard Dr. Connie say. So be open with your practitioners. Remember, we're here to help you and to empower you. And it's so important to hear about all the issues you face and what you can do about them. Here on the Beyond Bariatric Surgery podcast, we're all about your success. So don't forget, check out the website, beyondbariatricsurgery.com. That's where you're going to find this podcast and the courses we offer, the supplements you need. Don't forget, we have a closed Facebook group called Bariatric Surgery Eating, where you can be part of the group. You can talk about the issues you face. You can ask nutrition questions to the group. It's a very supportive place. So go to Bariatric Surgery surgery eating, request to join. There are a lot of free resources for members, and this podcast is one of them. Beyond Bariatric Surgery is produced and owned by Practicalories, LLC, all rights reserved. Remember, the content provided on this podcast is for information purposes only and doesn't create a patient-provider relationship. It's intended to provide reference material and is not designed to provide medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider regarding any medical issues you have relating to symptoms, conditions, diseases, diagnosis, treatments, and side effects. Podcast guests express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions, which do not necessarily reflect or agree with the host, Great Ideas in Nutrition, or Practicalories, LLC.